following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The theme that we are talking about today is about life's tragedies, about the struggle of life under the sun when difficulties hit us, um, things that are not welcomed in our lives, things that we wish would never happen, maybe even to our worst enemies, and yet they do. And how do we deal with these type of experiences? What sense are we to make of them when these things come our way? And so we're looking today at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10 to chapter 7, verse 12. And uh, there is um, just, even as I was preparing it, there was just too much there that I, I decided it's, it's going to be part one in the next week. I'm going to say a few more words on some other aspects, but today we want to focus more particularly on this issue of uh, dealing with death as we um, think about the uh, writings and the teachings of Ecclesiastes. And so it reads, starting chapter 6, verse 10, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to give to the house of mourning, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Father, we do commit to you this time as a time of learning, as a time of understanding, a time to gain wisdom that can only come from above, from your hand. And even as we've heard uh, Ken's testimony, we do offer a prayer for him and his family that you would strengthen them and encourage them with your promises. Let them be so rich in you that even in the face of the tragedy and tragedies that they've gone through, Lord God, that in their heart that faith would stand and know that you are always with them, and that there is a greater purpose and a plan to all things, so that in all things they would be able to give thanks to you 
in every circumstance. And may that testimony be true of each and every single one of us. Even as we're exploring these dark themes through the pages of Ecclesiastes, grant to us a heart of understanding to know and face life heads up, fully aware of the realities of life, that our religion, our faith, would not just be an opiate to dull a pain that we are trying to escape from, but the full grappling of the truth that you give to us through your holy word. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Through this exploration of the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been journeying with the preacher, as he calls himself, on this quest for meaning under this title that he calls Life Under the Sun. And as we saw in last week's message, his journey took him to this issue of money and greed. And before moving on to today's subject about death, I want to say a few more words about this topic because, um, to be honest with you, coming out of last week's message, I felt like there were some things that I wasn't quite sure I was communicating clearly. And so I wanted to just maybe come at it at a slightly different angle, and then we'll go on to the topic for our day. As I pointed out in that message last week, uh, we can't really talk about the meaning of life without at some point being confronted with this issue of money. Why? Well, because money, frankly, seems to be the answer to so many of life's problems. It seems to be the pathway to happiness. And however you define the, quote, good life, in other words, wherever you are putting your hope, whether it's in security because of an insecure world or status, to show others that you want in life, or in pleasure-seeking, that money gives you access to all those other things that you crave. You know, basically money seems to hold out the promise that it can give these things to you, whatever it is that you're craving or needing in your life. But as we saw last week, the preacher warns us that ultimately money can't solve all of life's problems. We saw that with money often is accompanied its own set of headaches, that what you actually think is going to be freedom actually turns out to be more bondage. I mean, the words of the philosopher poet Biggie Smalls, more money, more problems, right? But you never thought I'd quote Biggie Smalls in a sermon. Money is also too unstable a foundation on which to build all the hopes of your life. As quickly as it is there, it can be gone in an instant. But the biggest problem, as we saw last week, is that money ultimately cannot satisfy the deepest hungers of the human heart. You can try, and temporarily it feels good, but in the long term, it always leaves you empty-handed. And yet, the response to all of this is not the complete rejection of money as of money was an evil per se, but it was instead to put money in its proper place in our lives. As St. Augustine said, use and enjoy things, but love God alone. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10, we find these words of wisdom. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, 
into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, a lot of people misquote this passage, particularly 1 Timothy 6.10, to say that money is evil. But Paul never asserts that money is evil. Instead, he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, the problems arise when we allow money to have a control over our hearts that only God ought to possess. But as the preacher recognizes, there is a proper use of money that enables us to enjoy the things that God has given to us as his gifts without allowing them to become idols in our life without apology. We saw this truth in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18 to 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. I think Christians often struggle with this issue of pleasure. You know, it's this question of how do I deal with these desires that are inside of me? And I want to say this. It sounds very spiritual to say your desire should be only for God. But I'm not really sure that that's true or even biblical. Um, the truth is, there are other desires in me. Yes, I ought to love God, and I ought to desire Him, but He has also created me with other desires, and am I to reject all other desires as evil? I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. And the truth is, in light of that way of thinking about desire as evil, I think for many Christians, we try to deny the existence of these desires. We do everything in our power to try to suppress these desires as a way of controlling them. But the problem with that approach is that you can't fully stifle these desires. And what usually ends up happening is that you drive these desires underground. And what I'm saying by that is that this whole world of pleasure-seeking becomes a hidden world in our life that we keep from others. And so whether it's overeating or binge television watching or going on a shopping spree and spending far more money than you know you ought to be, we basically treat these things as necessary evils, which we just can't resist indulging in time to time. And in truth, know that later on we're going to have to repent for these things. But we just do them, right? It's, it's pleasure-driven underground. It's my hidden life that I keep from others, these secret needs that I have that I keep from God and from everybody else. And so what ends up happening is you end up sort of splitting your life into the life that you let others see, the public life, which is, you know, like a charade. You know, you're going through the motions of trying to project yourself as one person, and then you have this raging sea of needs 
and desires and pleasure-seeking that, in essence, become my hidden life, my life in the closet, my life in the dark that I don't let anybody see or touch, even God. And that is a setup for a fall. God is not anti-pleasure, okay? He is the one that created pleasures. God is not anti-pleasure. The Bible never teaches an outright rejection of pleasure. But we have to learn how to pursue pleasure in a way that is God-honoring. In other words, what I'm saying is we have to learn how to take this whole world of pleasure and take it out of the closet, out of the dark, into the broad daylight of the leadership of God in our life. In other words, there is a way to learn how to experience the joy of pleasure within the guidelines that God has given us. And in fact, this enjoyment of life's various pleasures ought to be part of any discipleship process. How do I actually enjoy these things without feeling so guilty about them all the time? How do I enjoy these things and yet keep them within the boundaries of a healthy walk with God. You know, let me just give you one example of sometimes how I feel like this plays out in the church. Is, you know, sometimes out of a fear of being judged by other believers, I think Christians often downplay their vacations, you know? Um, you know, everyone knows you went to the Caribbean because we saw it on Facebook, you know, or something like that. And so it's like, oh, you know, how was your trip? Because you really hadn't been talking about it. And then it can go something like this. Oh, man, oh, it was so hot over there. And uh, the beach was kind of dirtier than we thought it was going to be, so I, it was okay. Um, I hope that we can create a culture in our church where you can go uh, to a trip like that and come back and say without being judged by anyone, it was awesome. <laughs> it was more than I expected. I loved it. I am so grateful that God gave me that experience. And yet when I'm saying bringing it to God and experiencing this enjoyment in God, here is the truth. If you're going on vacations like that a couple times a year and you don't even give a fraction of that kind of spending to the work of God, then there is a problem, isn't there? There is a problem. Meaning when I submit my pleasures to God, it means I am unapologetic about the enjoyment of them but I also constrain them under his lordship in my life and have to genuinely ask myself the hard questions. You know, am I sacrificially and generously giving of my wealth for his work even as much as I receive these things as his gift to me for my enjoyment or does that generosity come have to be sacrificed for the sake of my pleasure-seeking? This is what I'm talking about when I'm saying let's bring our pleasure-seeking out of the closet, out of the dark, into the light of the community of God's people, and let us walk together and journey together in this, in how we discover this whole world of desire. In other words, in God's economy, there is a legitimate place for that holiday at the beach, as well as the sacrificial giving and the belt-tightening so that we could be more giving and generous to the work of God. And I hope you see that in all of this, the Bible's message is nuanced. It's subtle. It's not as simplified 
as we often try to make it. There are no pat answers, nor no plug-and-play formulas. Just tell me, Pastor. Just tell me. Give me a figure. Give me a number. I'll give that to the church. And then the rest is mine, right? I can do whatever I want with it. It's not like that. What we need is the wisdom to submit that to God's leadership and then to learn and grow honestly in the way we handle wealth, the way we handle money. Well, that's all I wanted to say about the whole wealth and money and greed issue. Our passage this morning begins with an interesting question posed by the preacher in chapter 6, verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? In other words, what the preacher is asking is, what does it mean for me to choose the good in my life in these few short days that I have to live on earth? How is a person to know what the good way is? What, what a good life is. And the answer that the preacher clearly has in mind is wisdom. Because at the end of the passage in chapter 7, verse 11 to 12, we see, you hear him expounding on this importance of wisdom in the life of the believer. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In other words, we need wisdom to be able to recognize and make good choices for our life. And the truth is, I don't think a lot of us like this answer very much. Because as I said a little earlier, I think all of us kind of want things more cut and dry. It would be a lot easier if God would just tell us what he wanted us to do, wouldn't it? In every situation. If life could just be reduced to a list of commandments, do this, don't do that, which we just need to obey, be easy. But that is not the way of wisdom. Wisdom is very different than formulas. Jeffrey Myers says, Biblical wisdom is a function of character and experience. It involves know-how. It entails skill, observation, contemplation, experience, and discernment. These are qualities that cannot be bought or memorized. They are capabilities that must be developed over time. In other words, there's no easy route to wisdom. It takes effort. It takes a heart that is willing to learn the hard lessons, to become a wise person. You know, a couple of people as I started this Ecclesiastes series here at ICC had confessed to me that prior to the series that we launched in the summer, they had actually never read the book of Ecclesiastes. So, uh, I, and I'm, I'm guessing that probably quite a few of you are in the same boat. It's probably a part of the Bible that you steered away from. Um, and it's not surprising because if we're honest, wisdom literature is confusing. It's not as straightforward as other parts of the Bible. Um, it seems to branch off into all of these sort of riddles and puzzles that we have to solve. And you have to read and keep rereading things to unpack the wisdom found in there. I mean, probably as you're reading through a lot of these scripture readings that we're doing at the beginning of the sermons, you're probably scratching your head going, I wonder what he's going to get out of this stuff, you know? Because you kind of do the scripture reading and you go, I don't know what, I don't know what I just read. I don't know what he's talking about. Um, this is the pathway to wisdom. It's not going to be handed to you on a silver plate. You've got to work for it. You've got to chew on it. 
You got to meditate on it to be able to unlock the wisdom that is there. And in our passage this morning, we find a series of these comparisons that are being made between two things, and the, and the preacher is saying, one thing is better than the other. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. It is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter, and on and on. And the first observation that we can make in light of this is that the choices in life that require wisdom are often not between right and wrong, but choosing the better way. And that's what makes wisdom so difficult. If it was so easy as black and white, right or wrong, then anyone could be called wise. But the truth is often the choices that you have to make in life that actually require wisdom aren't so simple. They're in shades of gray. And often you are looking at two options that you have in life and you realize neither one of these are actually wrong according to Scripture. It's not like God is telling me I can't do either one of these things, but you have to make a choice. And you have to say, but which is the better way? Which one is going to lead me to a better life? A life that pleases God. And the truth is that often the weaker choice at a surface level seems to be the better choice. That's another problem with wisdom, is often what you see at face value is not often the better thing for your life. It takes meditation and discernment and the ability to see through the surface level, to look underneath and say, no, the other way is the better way. I mean, just look at the list of comparisons that we saw a moment ago. I mean, these are almost nonsensical statements. He's saying it's better to be in a funeral than at a baby's birth. He's saying that it's better to be mourning a loss than being at a party. He's saying it's better to be sad than to be happy. And I think the gut level reaction is that's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense at all. How in the world is this wisdom for anyone? At first, it looks like chapter 7 is just a string of random wisdom sayings without any connection to one another. But on more closer examination, you begin to see a common theme that ties them together, and it is this experience of death and discomfort and suffering. This is the theme, a theme that the preacher has dwelt on actually over and over again already, and one that he dwells on through the entire book of Ecclesiastes. How do I deal with pain? How do I deal with death and my mortality in this life under the sun? And he has come to the realization that in God's grand design in life, death and suffering are inescapable realities for everyone. Whatever the reason that God may have, he has chosen, in other words, not to shelter us from the often harsh and even brutal struggles of life in this earth. And the truth is you can go through much of life doing everything you can to be in denial of this truth, to avoid pain at every turn, at every corner, to do everything that you can to have the most comfortable life possible. And the truth is often we anesthetize ourselves 
from the pains that we experience in life by trying to distract ourselves with temporary pleasures. I mean, I would argue that this is sort of the status quo for human existence, isn't it? It's pain avoidance. I want to avoid as much pain as possible. And yet, what the preacher seems to be suggesting is that's not the wise approach to life, is dodging every pain that comes your way. But wisdom is facing pain and facing death head on and confronting the reality of it so that you might grow wiser out of that experience. It's interesting, uh, our other pastors were preaching through the book of Acts and toward the end of the book of Acts, we saw, I'm not sure which one of them preached it, but this sort of uh, scene where the Apostle Paul bears witness before King Agrippa. And, um, and what we find in Acts chapter 26, verse 13 to 14, are these words. At midday, O king, and this is Paul speaking, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that last sentence is the interesting one to me. And it's probably one that you scratch your head and go, I don't have a clue what he's saying. You see, a goad is essentially a long stick with either a barb or a hook on the end of it. Farmers use goads. They use them to basically direct cattle, especially when you're doing something like plowing, to get the oxen to go the direction that you want it to. But what's interesting is that as you're holding this goad to make sure that the ox doesn't turn the way you don't want him to, sometimes the ox gets stubborn and gets angry and it starts kicking against the goad. But when you kick against the goad, what happens? You just hurt yourself. You just end up cutting yourself on the barb. And in essence, that's what Jesus was saying to Paul. Paul, I've been bringing trials and pain into your life to teach you a higher lesson, to bring you to me. But Paul, your life has been characterized by kicking against the goad meaning you're fighting it every step of the way. You're fighting the pain. You're stubborn. You refuse to learn the lesson of the pain until finally on the Damascus road, he could resist God no more and had to surrender his life to him. And I think that's what the preacher is talking about in Ecclesiastes 7. Are you kicking against the goad? Are you fighting the very lessons that God is introducing into your life? to teach you and to make you a wise person. The preacher begins in verse 1 with a pleasant enough truth. A good name is better than precious ointment. And to that, we say amen. But then he takes the passage in a very dark direction that nobody expects. Oh, and by the way, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, taken by itself, it sounds like the preacher basically has a death wish. You know, like... He's, you know, he's just this uh, very depressed guy with no hope in life. And so he's arguing that death is a better option than life. 
But if you continue reading further, you begin to recognize that's not really what he's saying. Because in verse 2 of chapter 7, it says, It is better to go in the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, he's not talking about you personally dying. He's talking about you attending a funeral of another person and why that is better. Okay? He then broadens it to not only include death, but pain of all kinds. In verses 3 to 4, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. But the question is this. Why does he say that it's better to be at a funeral than at a party? To be sad rather than happy? Remember what I said earlier. He's not saying that the celebration of a baby's birth or attending a party are bad things. These are good things. These are enjoyable things. But the preacher is making a relative comparison, arguing that difficult times have an advantage over good times. Why? Because here's the truth. As much as we enjoy times of celebration, they're not generally considered times of learning and growing, are they? As wonderful as it is to have a great meal with friends or to celebrate the birth of a new baby, like Andy and Rochella are doing right now, the truth is we don't really learn very much from these experiences, do we? Life is good, and it's important to be in the moment. And so there are times to celebrate and be joyful. But the truth is, those are not really philosophical times where we contemplate our mortality or think about death. If you do, there's something very dark and wrong with you. If you're at a birthday party and you're thinking about death all the time. So he's saying, yes, there are these good moments. Enjoy them. Celebrate them. Celebrate with those who are happy. That's good. But even better yet are those times when you're at a funeral of a friend, when someone, you're visiting a person at the hospital, not because they just had a baby, but because they're in the cancer ward. In other words, what the preacher is saying is, you can gain more wisdom by attending a single funeral than you can attending a hundred weddings or a hundred parties. And let me just outline for you what are some of the lessons I think we can learn about death and our own mortality. Death and the brevity of life teach us how to live for the right things. It's not really until you begin to think about your mortality that you begin to ask those deeper questions like, how am I living my life? What are the choices I'm making about the kind of life that I'm living? Psalm 90, verse 12, echoes this wisdom. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See the connection there? When I realize how short my days on this earth are, it motivates me to think, how am I living out these days? Am I really living in a good way? Richard Newhouse writes, our lives are lived in a succession of present moments. And the trick is to slow down the pace at which one moment is succeeded by another. Be still and know that I am God, says Psalm 46. Having never stopped to live the present moment, 
we one day run out of present moments and discover we have not lived at all. This is one of the wisdoms that we've been seeing coming out of the book of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Part of numbering our days and understanding the finite time that we have on this earth enables us to engage much more passionately in the present and saying, I have this day, I have today to live, and I'm going to seize this day and make the most of the opportunity that God has given me to live this present moment for Him. You know, I recently attended, as I mentioned before, uh, a funeral of a former church member. His name was Larry O'Malley. He was one of our, our church members at my previous church that I pastored uh, called Faith Alliance Church. And during that funeral service, uh, a lot of people came forward to testify of Larry's life. And one of the resounding themes that came out of his life was how much he loved to share about Jesus with other people. And uh, he, he would do insurance and like financial planning and things like that. He was, one of, he, was the, he was in that field. And he would do a lot of his job meeting with clients at Caribou Coffee Shop. And what these people said as they were eulogizing him was that uh, the Larry witnessed to everybody, customers and employees alike, in this Caribou Coffee Shop. And just shortly before Larry passed away, he had the joy of baptizing a caribou coffee shop employee that he had led to Jesus by all his days buying coffee there at that place and actually participated in baptizing him in that church. And I got to tell you, the impact of that experience is still with me to this day. It forced me to look at my own life and ask myself, am I making the most of the opportunities that God has given me? How hungry am I that one more soul knows about Jesus Christ and finds eternal life? And that is why the house of mourning is better than the house of mirth. It causes you, it forces you to reflect on the meaning of life. What am I really living for? Am I living for the things that count toward eternity? Another lesson that I think we learn from facing death square in the face is that contemplating our death through the eyes of faith enables to face it without fear. To me, this ought to be one of the most obvious hallmarks of the believer is how we face our own death. Virginia Morris writes, Hanging on the edge of a precipice, engulfed by terror, is not the time or place to learn about emergency rock climbing procedures. You have to learn about them before you start the expedition. Likewise, we have to start learning about death now while we are still healthy, before we are blinded by denial and fighting valiantly for hope. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that truth. You know, it's something that we don't even want to think about. We, we're in denial of, we ignore death. We push it out of our focus as much as possible because it's just too unpleasant to think about. Part of being a Christian is to be able to say, no, I do think about my death because in thinking about my death, I think about the promises of God and how real are they in my life. As I mentioned several times in the series, uh, C.S. Lewis, the great apologist of the 20th century, uh, 
went through this pretty dark season in his life when he lost his wife Joy to cancer and wrote this book called The Grief Observed that came out of that experience. And in it, he writes these words. It is hard to have patience with people who say there is no death or death doesn't matter. There is death. And whatever is matters. And whatever happens has consequences. And it and they are irrevocable and irreversible. You might as well say that birth doesn't matter. Uh, you, you get the sort of <laughs> sense of the tone of C.S. Lewis. And I think what he's getting at is um, even as Christians, we can live in the denial of death and be so bothered by the subject that we do everything to basically avoid thinking about it. And so out of that, we can respond to death in this very flippant, thoughtless, bumper sticker mottos kind of way. Oh, there is no death. Don't think about death. Oh, don't worry about death. And Lewis refuses to go down that road. He says, death is real. And every one of us is going to have to deal with death. Even as a Christian, the question is, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to face that moment when a loved one passes away? The question is, how real is your faith in that moment when you are confronted by the reality of death? Because as Christians, we must train ourselves to deal with death through the eyes of faith in God's promises because Jesus did tell us that we no longer have to face the fear of death because of his power and his love for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. These are truths that if you and I really believe them, we need to dwell on them. We need to meditate on them. We meditate on death not out of some morbid curiosity, but because of the courage that the gospel gives us to face our own mortality and say, I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to be afraid of because of what Christ has done for me. And the last one, and I'll end with this, is this. Pain and death test our faith and teach us deeper understandings of God's ways. C.S. Lewis realized that the death of his wife exposed some cracks in his own faith and the shallowness of his understanding of God and his ways. He writes, what do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to a dentist? <laughs> I love how he puts things. Um, in other words, it's so easy to say God is good when everything is going well in your life and to even believe that his goodness translates to a promise of never having to suffer in your life a pain-free life. But that is not what the Bible says. The pain that Lewis endured forced him to come to a much deeper understanding of what it meant to be able to say God is good in the midst of the pain that he was enduring at the loss of his wife. Lewis, in essence, acknowledged 
despite all the books I've written, despite the fact that I'm a professor at Oxford and considered one of the foremost apologists and defenders of the faith, personally experiencing death, I have much to learn about this God that I worship. And he writes, God has, been try- not try- God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the, th- the fact was to knock it down. You never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Would you then first discover how much you really trusted it? This is the harrowing journey of faith that every one of us must go on. And you don't go on this journey by denying death or avoiding pain. It only comes to the wise who see the wisdom of being in the house of mourning, who see the wisdom of sorrow, who don't try to anesthetize ourselves from the pains of this world, but to confront these pains, to confront our mortality head on and say, what do I really believe about this life? What do I really believe about God and His promises? And if I really believe these things, how then shall I live? What does it mean to really live this life if I believe these eternal truths? The Greek playwright Aeschylus wrote these words of wisdom. Even in our sleep, pain, which cannot forget, falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful will of God promise of God in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 to 58 is this. I tell you, brother, th- I, tell this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Let's pray. Paul goes on at the end of this discourse on the resurrection, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I think that is the ultimate fruit of wisdom is to know that whether I'm going through a season of darkness and pain or a season of joy and happiness, nothing that I go through in this life is in vain because of what Christ did for me on the cross, because of the eternal life that he purchased on my behalf. I can treat everything as a learning opportunity, believing that God is in control of every aspect of my life. I just want to invite you to pray for a few minutes as our worship team comes to close us out in a time of response. And I just want to challenge you with that thought, even in light of the testimony 
that we just heard this morning from my brother Ken. Maybe you will be spared the pain of going through what his family has had to go through. But here is the truth. All of us are going to die. All of us are going to bury loved ones. None of us escapes that pain. All of us are going to be at the doctor's office to hear the words that none of us want to hear and we all dread. And the question is this. How will you handle that moment when you're faced with it? Because the scary thing is we can live much of our life in the pain avoidance mode, doing everything we can to anesthetize ourselves from the realities of life, distracting ourselves with momentary pleasures. But real wisdom comes from the person who is able to look at the harsh realities of life and say, what is real here? What do I really believe about God here? And come out of that crucible, refined like gold, and say, I stake my entire life on the promises of God to me. And I am going to live my life by that faith so that when I come to that moment of pain, I can face it with courage, knowing that Christ has died for me. And in that death, I find the promise for eternal life. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as we respond to the Lord in prayer? Thank you.